truths. The Lord is my salvation. I have hope. Let's just come before this great Lord of ours and let's come to him in prayer and ask him to just be with us in a special way as we open his word before us. Let's pray. Yes, indeed, Lord, you are our salvation. When life around us goes to pot, you remain unchanging. We can flee to you, the rock of our salvation, and we will find our rest in you. Thank you, Lord, for that difference you have made to our lives. Lord, thank you that we can open your word. Thank you that we know that it is your unfallible truth, your infallible truth. Lord, thank you that we know that we can trust your word. Lord, as we open your word now, open our hearts at the same time. May your Holy Spirit work in each one here. Meet us where we're at, Lord. Drive your truth down into our souls. and Bring the change that only you can bring in us. Lord, I pray for our children in the Sunday school as they go through their classes, as they are taught your truths. Teach them too, Lord. We yearn for a harvest among our children. And Lord, we can teach them at home and we can teach them here as we gather together on a Sunday. But Lord, we know that you are the one who brings life. And so give them life, I pray. Bring life where there is darkness. May they meet Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for those among us who are sick. We pray for Sue. She undergoes this therapy. Pray for the rest on our prayer list there who I need of your hand of healing on their lives. Lord, may we get around them as the body of Jesus Christ. May we encourage them with our practical love. May we support them with our prayer before you. And may we encourage them and then stand with them and walk the rest of the road together with you. Thank you that we can come before you, Almighty God. We know you are right here amongst us. We can't see you, but we know you're here. And we know that you will work in us. Do your work now, I pray. By your Spirit and in your strength. Amen. I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19 and we're carrying on in our studies in this fantastic book. It's one that teaches us about how our Lord lived while he was on this earth. Luke chapter 19, verse 45 to 48. And then... If you could also just uh, look up Matthew chapter 21. Spoken a few times about different cameras, different perspectives on the same events. Matthew 21 is a really important one because it fills in a few more details for us. So we're going to be looking at both these passages. Firstly, Luke chapter 19, verse 45 to 48. And Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, 
My house shall be a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of robbers. And Jesus was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do. For all the people were hanging on his words. Aren't those beautiful words? They were hanging on the words of Jesus Christ. And now turn to Matthew chapter 21 and we're going to be looking at verses 12 to 13. Actually 12 to 17. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. May the Lord bless his word to us as we look into it this morning. I've titled my sermon this morning, Christianity Inc. Christianity Incorporated. Very special reason for that, you see. Christianity today has become a major industry. A major source of revenue. Christian booksellers and publishers today are massive corporations. And each one is trying to have the sole rights to a specific version of the Bible. Even in our dear country of New Zealand, and I can't mention any names of companies here, but a specific company is trying to monopolize the sale of all Christian material. And that's why many, many little Christian bookshops have closed all over the countryside. Even in the Christian music industry, and I'm not against Christian music and Christian music the industry, we've just sung a few songs from that industry, but the Christian music industry is guilty as well of turning Christianity into a major money spinner at the cost of people's souls. Even in our big mega church telecast services on TV with top of the pop superstar speakers that people flock to hear, they wouldn't be there if it wasn't for the associated sales that go with everything. The CDs, the books. And churches raking in money for that, as a result of that, right? Now, we need Christian books, we need Christian music, we need people to speak, and good people to come and bring God's word to us, yes. But there's a point where it becomes an industry. And the whole point of it has been forgotten. Where people sit in the middle of those big churches, in the middle of those big rock Christian concerts, lost souls, sitting among all those believers, that they are lost. 
No one notices them. No one cares if they're there. It's all swept up in the worship industry hype. Souls are lost. And while this is all happening, our God is infuriated. And I say that carefully. He's infuriated with a holy and a just anger. Why? Because another God is being worshipped. The God Mammon. Money. It's another God being worshipped, not Him. And what did He say right in the beginning when He gave the commandments? I am the Lord your God. Worship no other God but Me. And yet today, we in part of Christian Inc. are guilty of worshipping another God. True worship of God is very rare to be found because of all the hype. And I ask you today, is true worship of God to be found here, right among us, as we sit here at Wanganita? We can look into this, what does it look like? But let's first go and see what happened in this event described to us in this passage. What is the blueprint for temple worship? And I'm just going to zero in on two of the things that have some relation here this morning. The first is this. This is not the first time Jesus encounters the money sellers on the temple grounds. Way back, right at the beginning of his ministry, he had encountered them and he had overturned their table. He had done exactly what he does here in this passage. And the only one who records that instance is, is the Apostle John who records that. None of the others record it, but it's there for us. And now Jesus is at the end of his ministry, right? He's on his way to be crucified. He knows that. He's at the last time, one of the few times that he's going to still be in the temple. And then he's going to be arrested. And here he again confronts those who have taken over the worship of God by selling things in the house of God. We need to know a little bit about the layout of the temple and so I've put a bit of a map up there for you. Um, we have the court of the Gentiles, also called the outer court. And that's where all worship is entered, but it was specifically there for those who were not Jews who could come and worship the Lord there because they weren't allowed into the proper temple. But they could come and worship the Lord. It was specifically reserved for them. Because God in His providence wanted every tribe and nation to come to worship God. And so even in this Old Testamental covenant set up, God had made provision for anyone to come to Him and to worship Him. It was a place to prepare for worship to all who entered there, Jew and non-Jew. The, second, the third thing we need to know and in preparation is that this was Passover week. A whole week which was the highlight of the Jewish calendar. And there were two requirements of anyone that would come to Passover, to participate in Passover. Firstly, they had to bring an animal. And it had to be an animal with no defect at all. They had to bring it for sacrifice, where it was a cattle beast, if you were wealthy, where it was a lamb, a goat, or a bird, if you were poor. They had to bring a sacrificial animal. And I'll, I'll broaden out on that a little later. And then also the people had to pay a temple tax. Everyone 20 year older had to bring a half shekel and come and pay that as temple tax. Now they didn't just make that up. 
that comes way back from Exodus. And I want us to actually turn there because it's quite interesting. Exodus chapter 30, 3-0, Exodus 30 verses 11 to 14, we read about this temple tax. This is what the Lord said to his people way back in, during the nation of Israel's sojourn. This is what he said to them. Verse 11 to 14 of chapter 30. The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life. Look at that. Each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 gerahs. Don't get caught up in all that. Half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. Look at this now. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. Interesting. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for, for the service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. Interesting. So it's not just a little detail. So this half shekel, whether you were rich or poor, you had to pay half a shekel. That's it. Rich or poor, equal before the Lord. And all bringing this atonement shekel before the Lord. Interesting concept in the Old Testament, pointing forward to the Messiah and the Lamb who would die in their place once for all, right? So that was the blueprint for temple worship very shortly. But what was the reality on the ground? It was a different picture. And that's what we, what's described to us here in this passage. You see, the reality of temple worship was that in this court of the Gentiles was where the sellers were located. Now, that was supposed to have been outside of the temple grounds. They weren't even supposed to be inside where they were here. This, this money activity had to happen outside. But here these sellers have been allowed into the court of the Gentiles. As if the Pharisees and the, the leaders of the, the temple were saying, well, it's only among the Gentiles, so I suppose it doesn't really matter. We'll allow them on. Not a good advert for true worship of Jehovah, is it? As people come into the temple grounds, here's a squabble happening with people negotiating prices, animals bleating, noise, pollution from methane gas, they would tell us. And people are doing business when they should be preparing for worship. And let's say someone comes from outside of Israel coming to worship this God, Jehovah, who they'd heard about. And this is the first sight they see of worship of God. Not a good advert. You see, the priests were guilty by allowing people to buy animals at the temple instead of bringing their own, maybe that little land they've got attached to and, and fed and if it cost them something, by allowing people to just come and buy one at the temple, these religious leaders had made worship of God impersonal in one way. You could now go to the temple, you could go and buy your animal and then have nothing more to do with the, sacrifice, with the sacrificial process. Made nothing. Worship incorporated. We pay, you sacrifice. On the other hand, 
Let's say you brought your own animal. Well, then you ran another risk. You ran the risk of that animal of yours being declared not pure enough for worship before the Lord. Why? There's another reason here, you see. These merchants had paid the priests a generous backhander to be able to supply priest-stamped animals. And so if you brought an animal, well, they're going to find some defect in it so that you would have to put your animal aside and buy one of theirs. And who was getting the money out of this? The supposed leaders in Israel. The supposed priests of the Lord. And so the dove sellers were selling doves at a high price to the poor, the ones who couldn't afford it. And the excuse was, well, we need to raise our prices because it's hard to keep these doves pure. You need to pay. And the temple tax being, being asked for, yes, it was supposed to happen, but it wasn't just half a shekel anymore. You see, many foreigners were coming into Jerusalem, money changes had set up tables, and so they offered to exchange the Roman currency and foreign currency and to exchange it into Hebrew shekels. But they didn't just do it at a normal flat rate, they did it at exorbitant rates. A bit like when you go to airports. That's all I say. You see, the Lord wanted everyone to come to pay that small amount of half a shekel and then everyone come equally before the Lord. But what was happening here, they had turned worship of God into a money-making and extortion exercise. And God was not pleased. And so they need a reality check. And who better than the Son of Man, the Messiah Himself, to march into that temple court that morning? God Almighty. And so Jesus who had just wept for the city of Jerusalem. Remember we looked at that last time? Here he now walks down into the temple to come and worship with God's people. He walks into the temple court and what does he see? What does he encounter? He knew what, was to, what he was to expect. He sees the hustle. He sees the bustle. He sees the noise, the filth, the stench produced by all these animals. And all this stuff should have been outside of this area of worship of God. And righteous, righteous anger comes over him. Now, we're not told explicitly that he got angry, but his words and his actions show that he was. Now, I'm going to expand on this. What does Jesus do? He marches straight up to the cellars, doves flapping everywhere, tables flying everywhere, coins scattering all over the floor, people scampering Traders skedaddling out the way. And he also says, Mark, in his, in, in his um, description, Jesus chases out the people who are taking shortcuts through the temple grounds and through the very courts where people are supposed to be worshipping God on their way to do business in Jerusalem. That's how relaxed it had got. People were just taking it as a shortcut to go and do their business. They weren't even participating in any of the worship. He chases them out. Now, how do I know he was angry? Well, I know he didn't say, <coughs> excuse me, do you mind if I push over this table? No, no, he, he flung things around. Because he wanted to make a point, you see. Now, in this very action, some people have said that his reaction shows he's not divine. He got angry. He can't be God. Let's look at that a little bit. Because I want us to 
step aside a little bit from, we're going to pause this passage here and we're going to look a little bit about anger. What, how do you deal with this anger? Because it's really relevant here. You see, this was no impulsive outburst. This was no temper tantrum Jesus was having here. It was a deliberate act with an intentional message. And what was that message? When Jesus chucked those things over, don't worry about me. When Jesus chucked those, things, those tables over, what was the intentional message he was putting to the people? God will never hold guiltless those who exploit the privilege of worship. It was worship which was all important to him. You see, many pilgrims had travelled many days to come to this temple to worship God in obedience to God's Old Testament law. But before they were taken into the presence of God, they were taken to the cleaners. And Jesus says, enough! The very fact that Jesus did become angry, and this isn't the first occasion by the way, think of some of the other occasions when he confronts the Pharisees. He calls them all kinds of very descriptive names. He was angry with them, with a just anger. And the very fact that he could get angry indicates that if the Son of Man could do it, then anger as an emotion can't be wrong. Anger as an emotion is amoral. What does that mean? It's neither right nor wrong. It's an emotion. Ephesians 4.26 says, In your anger, do not sin. So there must be a right anger too. So how was Jesus angry and yet without sin? Let's look at it, because it's very different to the way we get angry. And I've just shortly put this down for you. It's not my own original thought, this by the way. This is from a really good app, this little summary, called Got Questions. Really good. This is what it says. You see, Jesus' Jesus' anger had the proper motivation. What was the proper motivation here? He was angry for the right reasons. Jesus' anger did not arise from petty arguments. It did not arise from personal slights against him. There was no selfishness involved here. It had the right motivation. Secondly, his anger had the proper focus. He was not angry at God or at the weaknesses of others. His anger targeted sinful behavior that he was seeing in front of him and true injustice that he was witnessing. That's what his anger was focused on. Jesus' anger stemmed from love for the Pharisees. Believe it or not, he loved them. He was concerned for their souls, for their spiritual condition and for that of the people they were misleading. That was the focus of his anger. It had nothing to do with hatred or ill will. Thirdly, his anger had proper control. You might not think it when you hear he overturned the tables, right? But Jesus is never out of control. Here's an important point. Even in his judgment one day, he will never be out of control. He will give the judgment due. He did what was necessary in the situation. You don't want them to trade anymore while overturn the tables. Let the pigeons free. Let them out. Get the animals out of the court. He controlled his emotions. And here's the important one. His emotions did not control him. Now I hang my head in shame and I'm sure most of you do as well. He did not have to apologise for his actions after. 
most of us do. Fourthly, his anger had the proper duration. He did not allow his anger to turn into bitterness. He did not hold grudges. He dealt with the situation immediately. And I think that's an important one. Sometimes we stew. And then lastly, his anger had the proper result. Did they carry on trading there? Probably after a while, but not that day. Jesus' anger led to godly action. He got rid of that activity in the temple. He didn't dong anyone over the head to keep it in Wanganui years. He just did what was necessary. His anger was held in check, not just by the word of God which he knew, but by his own holy, perfect nature. You see, unfortunately, when you and I get angry, we often fail in quite a few of these points, don't we? This is the anger of man, and James 1, and Dave took us through this a few years ago. This is what James 1, 19 to 20 says. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. So that was Jesus' anger, very different to ours. Right, let's unpause. We're back in the, the event over here. Jesus is angry and he overturns these tables. He drives the people out of this place of worship. He wasn't alone in his anger, by the way. The Old Testament prophets also demonstrated holy anger. Think of a person like Jeremiah, so angry at the nation of Israel because he kept bringing them God's word and they never seemed to listen for very long. And then Elijah, the prophets of Baal, they got slaughtered by just anger. For God's honour was at stake. So what does Jesus say to them? He says to them as he's overturning these tables, My house is a house of prayer for all people, says Isaiah, because Jesus was quoting Isaiah in his statement there. My house is a house of prayer. This temple of mine is supposed to be a place where people from any nationality can gather without hindrance or obstacle to freely come and worship God. Instead, you religious leaders have turned it into a robber's den. A robber's cave is the literal translation there. You see in Judea, along the roads, robbers would wait and wait for, pe- for people to come walking down and then they would leap on them and then rob them clean. And he says, you religious leaders have become like that. You are robbers to these people who have come here to worship me. You are pouncing on them to rob them of what they have. And what do you create in them? You create this, this fear in them, this, this fear of being robbed, this fear of coming to the temple of God, this fear which says, am I going to have enough money on me to buy this animal for sacrifice? In other words, can I afford to have my sins forgiven by God? Do you see what they would do? They'd put a price on meeting with God in the fact, in the face of well-known passages like Isaiah 55. And I've quoted that often from this pulpit where God says to people, a free invitation, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, he who has no money, come, buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. We can come to God freely, you see. And they have put up an obstacle of price. It will cost you to have your sins forgiven. 
They dared to stand between God and people with invoice in hand. Pay up. Then we'll do the rest. And so Jesus' righteous anger burns against them. Not surprisingly, they don't like this reaction, right? There's opposition. Verses 47 to 48. But what does Jesus do? He faces the opposition from the Pharisees, uh, from the, the priests, and what does he do? Does he turn his back on the temple and walk away in a huff? Does he start another temple because this one's not working? Does he stop going to the temple because I couldn't be bothered with him? See, it's a human reaction there. No, no. He's back the very next day and the next day and the next day until he's arrested. And what is he doing there? He's doing what his father had sent him to do from when he was a boy, the first time in the temple. He is preaching to the people. He's teaching God's word clearly and with authority. He's teaching a very early form of perseverance of the saints. Go on with the work God has put in front of you. It doesn't matter what God's people do to you. Carry on. He goes on doing what God has told him to do. The very job that these supposed priests, the leaders of God, were supposed to be doing for the people. And so what do the chief priests and the scribes do? They don't like it at all. Because even in the very action of the children in front of him, the children were singing these praise songs with messianic themes to them. They say, they say to Jesus, Jesus, do you hear what they're doing? They're being joyful. And they're saying, you're the Messiah. That's just not on. It's not going to happen here. They didn't like it, you see. Jesus had shown them up to to be greedy leaders, greedy priests, like the priests in the book of Malachi. And they very well knew that book, where God had spoken out against those priests who were misleading the people in their worship. And also they were angry because now they were losing a, a big income from all these sellers. And so the Bible says that they constantly tried to find an opportunity to what? Look at the word. It's a very strong word. To destroy Jesus. They pass hatred now. They want to destroy him. And not just them. They influence the leading men of the people, verse 47, to also join them in their hatred of Jesus. And so they're having this influence going further and further. And as they as it progresses further into chapter 20 and then to chapter 23, we see that they even influence the men, the women, the children to also turn against Jesus in the end until the, the whole crowd, crowd cries out, crucify him. These are the supposed leaders of the people. And yet at this very moment, they could not destroy Jesus. Why? Because in God's timing, it wasn't the right time yet. This had to happen. Because the ordinary people we're obstructing them. Why? The ordinary people are hanging off the very words Jesus spoke. The literal translation is there, they were hanging off his lips. Everything he said, he preached with such authority, with such clarity, they hadn't heard this before from their own leaders. And they hung on his every word. If the Pharisees turn against Jesus now, if the priests turn against Jesus now, the crowds would chase them out of town. They wanted to hear what he was saying. Well, we're going to carry on with that, with what happens from there next time we meet. But 
how does that apply to you and I today? We're sitting in Wanganui here in this auditorium, 2016. I want to ask us four questions. The first question is this. What hinders us at this church from worship of God? Now before we start pointing fingers in our minds at others, we need to first start pointing one back. What, what is your attitude? What was my attitude when I came to worship God this morning? Had I prepared myself for worship? Or did I bundle the kids in the car, chaos reigned, and I got here just under the speed limit, hopefully, and we managed to get here? How did we, how did we prepare ourselves for worship of God? What is my attitude when I come in obedience to the Lord to worship Him here with others of His people? Years ago when the billionaire Howard Hughes died, his company's public relations director asked the casinos in Las Vegas where Hughes owned most of his big casinos to show him some respect by giving him just a minute of silence. For an uncomfortable 60 seconds, all the casinos in Las Vegas fell silent. Then one of the pit bosses in the casinos looked at his watch, leaned forward and whispered, Okay, roll the dice. He's had his minute. Business as usual. You see, do we sometimes, you and I, and I speak to myself as much as anyone else, and I'm the pastor who prepares messages here. Do we sometimes treat God as those gamblers in Las Vegas treated Howard Hughes? We interrupt our busy schedules once a week, rush into church, give God his hour or two if, if Calvin's up here, and then we forget about him and we go back to what we'd rather be doing or maybe doing for the rest of today. You see, this attitude hinders our corporate worship. If just one of us has come with that attitude, it hinders our corporate worship. If there's two of us, it hinders our corporate worship even more. If there's 15 of us with that attitude, we're severely impeded in our worship of God. It affects everyone else. Because we've come to worship Him together. So, how do we come? How do we prepare ourselves when we come to this place to worship God? And when I say this place, it's not the building, it's the people. How do we prepare ourselves to meet with God's people to worship Him? Do we come in reverence? Do we come preparing our minds and our hearts to be in tune with God so that He could lead us in worship? Or do we maybe rely on the worship leaders to lead us in worship of God? They'll be alright. They've prepared. I can just come and sit and we'll sing what they've got prepared and it'll, be, it'll, it'll work. Or maybe the pastor, we actually pay him to come and have messages ready and to come and preach God's word to us. And so I don't have to prepare my heart. I don't have to participate in active listening to the sermons. I can just come along, sit in my seat, try and stay awake and then tick this worship box and leave and carry on the rest of my life. People, I'm not condemning you. I speak to myself as much as to anyone else here. Do we come prepared to worship God? Have we prayed? Have we confessed our sins before Him individually? Have we fed our souls? 
have we told ourselves we are meeting with Almighty God? And then, approaching this time together with reverence because of God is going to be among us. You see, if we don't, we've put our souls up for sale to another buyer. I'll be straight. There's another God in our lives. But it's not the true one. Or, I'll try and be as practical as I can. Or maybe you go to church, this church, or maybe this specific church, because we sing these songs and not those. I've known people who've come here, they've listened to what we sing. Oh, no, 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 we don't like these. We want those songs. And so they've left. But the lyrics are less important than what others are singing and what's popular. You see, what we've done is we've bought into the popularity hype of Christianity Inc. Why are we here? Why do we come here to worship the Lord with songs of praise? Or perhaps you own the corner stand on the rights to worship God. What I mean, let's say in our home groups, people want to join us, but they might not fit in with us. We're kind of cosy. We enjoy each other's company and someone else here is going to kind of disrupt them. Are we putting a price on people coming in to worship with us? We've got to be careful. We can be buying into this lie. We don't want to be there to set a price on someone coming to worship God with his people. Second question is this. What robs, in you, what robs you and I of personal worship of God? Have we perhaps got a heart which is a den of robbers? I'll explain myself. What other things crowd out the temple court in your heart? What other things get in the way of your soul engaging with God and listening to his voice? Troubles you've got financially, business troubles, how to get the next thing on trade me and my mind is occupied with that all the time. Or maybe just busyness and all I've got to offer the Lord is my shekel of distracted heart, an offering which is unworthy to bring to my king. Is your heart distracted in your worship? Is your heart robbing God of true worship? Thirdly, I want to put to you this morning, is Wanganui East Baptist, this body of believers, a house of prayer? Now, Jesus doesn't go into what a house of prayer means here, so I'm not going to either. But I want to ask you this. Do we pray as we should pray? In our prayer meetings, all 16 of us, do we pray as we should pray? Body of Wanganui East Baptist. This is supposed to be a house of prayer when we come together. Does true worship of God take place here by our participation when we are together? Do we mindlessly sing songs and it doesn't actually enter into us? We're not concentrating on what we are singing. Maybe we're not eager to obey, to obey the Lord once we've heard the word. We go out we've forgotten what we've heard. Or maybe the practical evidence of His love is not what it should be amongst us. I urge you, my brothers and sisters, let us worship God in spirit and truth from our hearts to the best of our abilities with the help He will give us. And then those who enter in among us won't see people who just sing mindlessly, people who are not participating, people who have come together but 
they're just singing these things, but when they look around, they see, well, no one's actually concentrating much. I can see a lot up here too. Maybe they will experience the Lord Jesus Christ living among us. They will sense His love as they see us interacting with each other. Jesus Christ is alive. And they will be able to sense something of what it is to worship a living God. My prayer for this body of believers is that this will be a place where God's Word is preached and held high and obeyed. Where Christ is in the midst of us. Where the Holy Spirit is at work changing us. Because when that stops, true worship of God is dead. And fourthly, I want to ask you, and this is the last question. Perhaps as you're visiting here today, you're not a believer. Jesus Christ is not Lord of your life. As you've come to this place, maybe you want to find out more about church, or about God, or you've heard something from a friend or a colleague, and you want to kind of come and find out, what is all this about, this religious stuff? You're in the court of the Gentiles. The only thing that God says to you today is cut through everything else and come to me. There is still a way for you to worship me, but you need to bend the knee to Jesus Christ. He will pay for the sin that you are committing and have committed and will commit without Him. There is a way back to God. And I repeat those words from Isaiah. And this is a direct plea from the heavenly God, the all-powerful living God to you as you sit here this morning. This is what he says. He says, come, everyone who thirsts. And you might be thirsting today. You might be thirsting for answers in your life. Come to Jesus Christ. God says, come, you who thirst. Come to the waters, the living waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. You don't need to pay. It's freely available to you. Jesus Christ died for you. But what a price He paid. He paid the price, the once for all price, because He gave Himself for you. He died in your place for the sin that you have committed and that you stand owing to Him. Come to Him freely. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without Christ. Come to Him today. Worship Him. And He will give you life. I pray that there's something here for each person today as these words have gone out that the Holy Spirit has hit something in your hearts. And my prayer for you is when you leave this place you might not remember anything else except that one thing that God has spoken to you about. Go and act on it. That is true worship of God. If you turn away and don't act on it, you have sold your soul. Christianity Inc. is at work. Let's pray. Lord, our Heavenly Father, thank you for the example of our Lord. And even in a passage like this, when by human standards we wonder, and maybe we even identify, but Lord, thank you that we've been taught that you 
we're the Holy Son of God. That you came to show us how to confront issues so that we could have true worship of you in our lives and in our congregated life together together here as well. Thank you for your word, Lord. Help us now to act on it and not to turn our backs on you. Help us to have true worship of God in our lives. And when we get together again for worship, Lord, help us to prepare ourselves to come together with your people to meet with the living God in a special way. And then you will bless us. We give you praise indeed. Amen.